Would you take your Bible with me and turn to 1 John chapter 2 this morning? 1 John chapter 2. Thank you, music team, and thank you, congregation, for your time of worship together today. As I was sitting there, standing there, singing with you, my prayer was that God would bring us his message today. He's already allowed the music to prepare our hearts. Your participation in worship really gears your mind and and full adoration in the proper place. And so now as we're going to be fed from his word, our earnest prayer would be that God would give us his message so that we collectively can take steps of growth and that we can walk out of here changed into the image of like Jesus Christ and that uh, God would continue to work in us. So we're going to continue our series through the book of First John and we're going to look today at the next section of this letter. I'm getting a lot of feedback, guys, if you can help me out here. Uh, 1 John chapter 2 is where we're going to pick up, and we're going to look in verse number uh, 12 here in just a moment. Now, we celebrated Valentine's Day and talked about that last week pretty thoroughly in our Sunday morning message, talking about the things that I love. But really, the love-hate relationship has a very interesting aspect. We could define things in our life that we, because we love it or them, it causes us to have a hatred for something else. Let me give you a couple examples here. Um, we hate germs, therefore we love to wash our hands. How many of you are germaphobes and you wash your hands about 80 times a day? Okay. How many of you have five bottles of hand sanitizer? You're squeezing, spraying, goggling, doing whatever you have to to stay clean and pure, all right? Uh, what is it? Not goggling. Um, Gargling, gurgling, giggling. I, I don't know. You take your pick, all right? Whatever you want to do with it, okay? Yeah, so we hate germs. We love being healthy. We love having clean hands. Um, married couples, let's think about that for a minute. Married couples love each other. They love their spouse's attention. They love their affection, their protection. Really, the sole commitment from that married relationship. And so that causes them to have a hatred. It causes them to hate extramarital activity from outside of the marriage. There is a goal for protection from pornography, which kills love. There is this hate of anything that is going to hurt or kill off the affection and protection within that, that marriage. Um, some people love their spouse so much, spouse so much that they're even willing to um, put the toilet paper upside down. And that's just the way you use it, even though it's the wrong way. But you're like, I love my wife so much, I'm willing to hate the way we do the toilet paper. Um, that's not in our home. We're very unified in that, and that's a strong point in our marriage. Um, you love peace, and you love unity, and you love marital bliss, and so you hate unresolved conflict. That's a love-hate relationship. And then there's coffee um, how many of you love coffee? You would say, I love coffee. But how many of you say you also love sleep? You love sleep. Okay, so at nighttime, like this picture, you're not going to drink coffee at nighttime because you, though you love coffee, you hate sleepless nights. And so you're going to do anything you can to help yourself to have a good night's rest. And so this would be a good illustration as well. So you avoid the coffee at night. Now, in this part of the letter here in 1 John, he is going to include a warning that continues his thought on authentic love. 
As we studied last week, we talked about this love for one another and really the full authentic love that John is emphasizing in his writing. And now he's going to give us a discussion point. He's really going to bring us to a a decision place, a place where we're going to have to make a very practical and intentional decision. Where am I going to put my love? And so here in 1 John chapter 2, look at verse number 12, please. He says, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him, that is, from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him, that is, from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust, the desires thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abides forever. So this morning, I want us to look at this passage of Scripture with the love that God hates, this loving toward the world, something of great warning as well as decision point for us today. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we humble ourselves before you and asking for your clear wisdom and leading today. I thank you for an important text like this that John would include in his letter that we can partner alongside and gain good insight and instruction and that we can also come away with personal application. And so our prayer today would be that you will help us to be in tuned with your leading, that you would free us from the distractions that would take our mind in so many different directions. If there's somebody here today that does not have a personal relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, We would ask today that they would be able to become your child, become a part of the family of God, and see a life that is renewed and transformed. And so we offer this time to you in Jesus' name, amen. So two different authors that you will read about have taken this section of verses and titled it, The Love God Hates. Several years ago when I was reading through this passage and studying it out a little bit, I grabbed a hold of that title and kind of really fits well. So it's not original with me. This is something, though, that I've read in the past. I think it really matches well this context of what John is writing about. With this love toward the world, it is something that God wants us to avoid. Now, before we get to verse number 15, which is really kind of the, the, uh, the crux of this section with loving the world, I want us to kind of work our way through these verses. The love that God hates in verses 12 through 14 is a, is a love that hinders our growth. You know, with any kind of love, we often would think that it is a part of a cultivating process. It's a nourishment. It is a, it's a feeder. It's a neutralizer that causes there to be great strength that is going to come. Seeds grow into plants. Infants grow into adults. New Christians grow into Christ-likeness. We're very used to the thought and feature, both in the physical and spiritual world, that there is a growth process. How many of you sitting here today would say, you remember back when your adult child used to be a baby or a toddler? How many of you would say that? You remember that, okay? And uh, some of you who are parents right now of young kids, you're, you're watching them grow right in front of you, and they say, don't blink, it'll be over, and you, you know, you're like, oh, please let me blink, <laughs> you know, and so you're like, that's a long blink. Is it over? 
All right? I'm not sure what the situation is in your house. But when you think about that, we see that there is so much that is around us that is a part of growth. Well, this kind of love and affection toward the love that God hates is going to halt, hinder, and, and squelch any spiritual growth that we as followers of Jesus Christ should be experiencing. Because when malnutrition and disease and some type of defect happens, then there's the potential for growth to be stunted. There's the potential for that growth to be hindered. And so in a Christian, uh, in our Christian journey, there needs to be correct teaching from God's word. There needs to be intentional discipleship. There needs to be personal investment that is made. And when those things are not made in somebody's life, well, then that growth pattern is going to be more difficult to take place. That's why within the core values of Parkway and really an emphasis point, we really want there to be growth opportunities for the people of Parkway. Whether it's with our discipleship ministry, a connection class, or finding a one-on-one relationship that's just going to do life together, it is always looking for what is next so that our spiritual life never flatlines or plateaus. We never want to see it just become blah, We want to take exciting steps on an ongoing basis. That doesn't just happen by chance. Remember our little saying that spiritual decline will happen. Spiritual decline is inevitable. It will take place unless intentional spiritual renewal is happening in most every day. And so we'd say, well, I've got my own problems to worry about, let alone somebody else's problems. But remember how God has equipped us to pour our life into somebody else's. And so whether that's through the discipleship ministry or maybe a mentoring opportunity, we need to be asking God, God, bring somebody to pour into me so that I can pour out into somebody else. John is going to divide his readers here into three groups. You saw that as we read the text. Now, he starts off with this, these names. He calls them dear children, these little children, and calls them fathers and young men. And he addresses each group twice in the text. Now, it's important for us to understand that he's not indicating them based on their physical age. He is not referencing them to where they are in their physical realm, but rather the stages of their spiritual development. That's going to really help make more sense to the context of what he's writing, and it's going to give us all a better understanding. Now, the first time he uses it in verse 12, he uses a term that he uses all throughout the letter. It's the little children. As he writes to them in verse 12, he says, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. And so here the emphasis is, as a reminder, this term of endearment that, again, is used all throughout this letter. It's a way for him to remind his reader of their identification in Jesus Christ. Now, again, John probably was an elder man at this point in his writing. He's writing this letter to the churches scattered all throughout Asia Minor. And as he's writing them, probably many who he's invested his life into, maybe many who he's even led to a personal relationship in Jesus Christ, he's going to address them as dear little children. But then he brings this tag and this reminder that says, your sins are forgiven. A wonderful reminder to those who are believers, no matter where they are on the growth spectrum, they are reassured that they have been forgiven of their sins. That's what is so exciting about starting our service today with the song of Jesus Saves, because it brings us to a place not only of proclamation that God is still in the saving business, 
but also a realization of what Jesus has done for us, remembering that we have been forgiven, remembering that we have been made new. And so when we see this reminder to us, what an incredible, incredible hope. The perfect tense in this verse, forgiven, it denotes a past experience that had a moment of forgiveness, but it is also leading to a present state of a continual forgiveness. I'm thankful that in the first part of this letter, he reminded the Christians that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so when our life gets beaten down and battered and we have turned away from Lord God Jehovah and we followed after the many gods and idols of our life and we've attached them so that we can have some pleasure and some separation from holiness, God is still there with open arms, ready to convict and ready to change and bring great restoration and renewal. And so that happens constantly in a Christian's life. And I'm thankful for this reminder that he gives. And so because their sins were forgiven, they were living their lives for God. Now look at the, look at the pattern of growth here. In, in verse 13, now the way he patterns this is in the latter part of this, he references, I write unto you, little children, because, because you have known the Father. This is like, as the screen says, this is like the beginning element of the spiritual journey. This phrase, little children, is different from verse 12. Verse 12 is going to be the title of endearment that he gives to all believers. Verse 13, latter part of the verse, he is giving this term of those in their spiritual journey who are just in the beginning stages. It's somebody who has just put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Somebody who's trying to learn all the facets of having a heavenly Father. Uh, this is not a derogatory term. It's really just one that is used to help them to understand they're still uninformed, undeveloped, and immature in the need of guidance and care. And by the way, church, that's why when a new believer at Parkway happens, it's not like, okay, good, let's move on. We'll dock them off and hopefully they'll get baptized and something good will happen with them. No, it is personalizing that to the point where we say, God, would you use me to help that undeveloped life, that uninformed mind and heart, that life that needs care, and pouring into, would you use me to help them to the next steps in life? It does not become hands-off. It doesn't become somebody else's problem. It really personalizes to say, how can I pour into them the basic knowledge of the Father? The second term he uses here is young men, and we see that in the middle of verse 13. He says, I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. In verse 14, he is going to say, I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. This reference here is the, is the word that we would say prime. This is somebody in their spiritual prime. It's somebody that is, is not perfect, but they're, they're doing their very best to be renewed in the spirit of their mind on a daily basis. They're saying no to the sins and the pleasures of this world, and they're saying yes to Lord God Jehovah. They're showing that their love and loyalty is to God first and not to themselves. And so they're taking all of these actions and all of these steps to go in the right way. They're no longer motivated just for devotion to God, but now they have a concern for the clarity of doctrine, for the teachings so yes, I'm devoted to God. I am his and he is mine. But now I'm hungry to know more about who he is and who I am and more about his truth from his word. And so this is an individual that is taking 
intentional steps of growth. They may still have somebody pouring into their life, but now at this point, they're able to pour into others. They're at a place even here where the Bible tells us the word of God abides in them. Remember John 15, we studied last Sunday night, we'll study again tonight and talking about this abiding in Christ. And it talks about how the word of God is what gives us growth. It's the word of God which gives us health. It's what gives us the sustainability to keep going forward. Christians throw their their arms up in the air all the time as if they're in great desperation and, and in great despair, don't know what direction to go and don't know why God has left them. And it has come back to the very basics that in their life, God's word is not a crucial part to them. They're not saturating their mind and heart on the truths of God's word. They're not memorizing. They're not meditating. They're not celebrating the promises And so God's word's not important to them. Well, young men is referenced not to just the 20 and 30-year-olds and 41-year-olds in the crowd. Okay, we're not all just the young men. This is referring to a part of the spiritual process. This is a time in your spiritual journey, both male and female, where you are now taking on the understanding of the scriptures. It's also that you are fighting against Satan's number one attack. You see, he says that you have overcome the wicked one in verse 13 and verse 14 as well. And so this deception that comes through false religious systems and teachings. Remember, that's what John is writing in in reference to. Because Gnosticism in the last part of the first century is is pummeling the local church and it is coming into their doors and they're becoming confused and they're saying, yeah, that seems to make sense. It has enough enough religious talk and enough God talk that it's sugar-coated for me. I'll take it hook, line, and sinker until all of a sudden they find themselves buried in apostasy and don't know which way to go. That's why John writes this letter. He says, be aware and overcome the evil one because he's full of deception. Turn to John chapter 8, if you will, please. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the pew uh, there, the hymn book holder. You're more than welcome to use that and even to take it home if you would like a Bible for yourself. If you don't see this in front of you, maybe find somebody nearby. Too many verses for me to put them on the screen this morning, but Jesus is speaking to a great crowd of people. He's speaking about how he is the light of the world. And in verse number 30, it says in John chapter 8, remember, same author that we're reading from 1 John is writing the gospel of John. He is recording the account of the life of Jesus Christ. And in verse 30, he says, and he, Jesus, spake these words, or as he did, many believed on him, believed in him. Verse 31, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Now that's a really important thing, even in reference to what we're talking about. Those who are the young men in their spiritual journey, they're continuing in his word. They are abiding in his word. Abiding is not a a, a multiple choice word. Abiding is a constant involvement. There is that partnership in his word. So he says, if you abide in my word, then you're my disciples indeed. That is just a true reflection that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Verse 32, he says, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Well, they answered him, oh, it's okay. We be of Abraham's seed and we were never in bondage to any man. We don't need freedom. How sayest thou you shall be made free? Well, Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abides not in the house forever, but the son abides forever. 
If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, well, then you shall be free indeed. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. You don't accept my word. You want to kill me off. I, I know you're of Abraham's seed, but there's so much deception in you. Verse 38, I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. So they answered him and said unto him, Well, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If you were of Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This do not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he, God, sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? How, how come you don't comprehend what I'm saying? Even because ye cannot hear my word. Ye are of your father, the devil. And the lust, the desires of your father, ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? Who of you is trying to convict me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's word. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Now go back to what John would write in this letter, because here to those who are in their prime, who are taking steps of growth spiritually, they're overcoming the wicked evil one in his deceptions. And by the way, church, the enemy, Satan, has continued to deceive all these years, and he hasn't slowed down. He has not given up. He has not said, fine, this is a good group. I won't mess with them. The spiritual warfare that takes place all around us on a daily basis has an enemy attack, a demonic enemy attack that wants to defeat us, wants to divide our marriages, wants to split apart our homes, wants to corrupt our hearts. That's why Jesus would say, the thief comes not but for to steal, kill, and destroy but I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly, that you might live life to the fullest. So when John writes here to this group, this is a group that is living life to the fullest. This is a group that has gotten over the deception of the enemy and says, I want no part of you. I want no part of your tactics. I am moving forward with God. Now look at the last part. It's the spiritual father's. He says in verse 13, he says, I write unto you fathers because ye have known him that is from the beginning. And then he reiterates in verse 14, the first part, I've written unto you fathers because ye have known him that is from the beginning. This is a, a moment of maturity or what we would say a, a Christian with experience. They've been around the block a time or two. They have gone through the spiritual ups and downs in their spiritual journey. It has nothing to do with their age. It has nothing to do with their life experiences. It has everything to do with how long they have been a follower of Jesus Christ. And not even just that, but really how long they have passionately 
abided in Christ. Because we well know that there are people who have been saved for 30 and 40 years who unfortunately would still be duped by the devil and be as little children in their spiritual journey. There are plenty who have been deceived by the enemy who maybe got saved when they were a teenager, but now in their 50s and 60s, they've not taken the steps of spiritual growth, maybe because nobody's loved and poured into them, but maybe because they've not once searched to see what is it that is next for my spiritual journey. And so knowing him as the source of truth and the object of the worship and praise that it produces is a key element to this Christian's life. So if you can't, or don't worship God, it's, it's because you don't know him. If, if you can't or don't praise God, it's because you don't know him. And so this love is one that will hinder our growth. In verse 15 through 17, we're going to come to a part that talks about the, this love that God hates. It's a love that derails our focus. In verse 15, he says, love not the world neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so we would say, well, what does loving the world even look like? Now, we know the word cosmos there in the New Testament Greek is a word that is going to be commonly used anytime you would see the world in the New Testament. But there's three different definitions that kind of tag along with that word world in the Greek language. The first one that we're going to see is used in Acts 17, 24. It's the physical world. It's the earth itself, the, the earth and globe that we live on. It's Acts 17, 24, God that made the world and all things therein. This is a really important um, aspect of, of God's uh, design, and we see some really beautiful places, some incredibly uh, beautiful creations of God's handiwork, and love them, enjoy them. Um, how many of you would say that you've been to a place and experienced God's creation and you were just so mesmerized that you loved what God had created? Anybody ever been there? All right. Men, how many of you have ever stumbled across seeing your wife out around the corner and you just have loved God's beautiful creation? Amen? All right. Brownie points right there. Yes. My hand's the highest. You see that, Natalie. Thank you. All right. Enjoy God's beautiful creation. Then there's another one. Uh, there is the human world. This is mankind, John three sixteen. He said, for God so loved the world, the mankind, the human race, everyone that was a part of that human world. And we would say that we too must love people, loving the unlovable, loving the hard to get along with, and even loving our enemies. So we're to love God's creation, this physical world, the earth. We're to love the human world, mankind, love God, love people. Sometimes these two worlds are even used in the same verse. Like John 1 verse 10 says, he, Jesus, was in the world, that's the earth, and the world was made by him, and the world, mankind, knew him not. Even John three seventeen, for God sent not his son into the world, the, the physical world, the world we live in. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, mankind, but that the world, mankind through him might be saved. And so we can see a lot of different definitions that is used for this cosmos, this word world. But here's the third one in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. It's the enemy world. It's the invisible spiritual system. It is Satan's system for opposing the work of Christ. This is a very active system. We see it in our culture. 
Uh, We see it all around us on a daily basis. We see it even in those who are unrighteous or those who are unsaved. We, We can't have high expectations for those who are not saved because they're a part of this system that opposes the work of Christ. You ever wonder why somebody stands in the way of you accomplishing what you feel is God's will for your life? Because it may be somebody that the enemy is using to oppose the work of God in your life. Sometimes we have to be very careful that we don't have good intentions while standing in the way of somebody accomplishing God's will for their life. One of the things I appreciated so much growing up with my mom and dad and in our home was that from the very beginning, they emphasized that they wanted me to pursue and do God's will. Even if that meant after graduation from high school, it meant leaving the comforts of Lakeland, Florida and being dropped off in Greenville, South Carolina, and then for four years after finishing school, moving up there for two years, and then moving there to stinky Georgia for 11 years, I told myself as a teenager I would never live in Georgia. How many of you drive from Florida to the north, you drive through Georgia, and it just has this really stinky smell? Anybody relate? Okay. You Georgians, you don't get it. I know. You were born there. You love it. But... It just represents a lot about the Atlanta teams, okay? So it's just kind of, it kind of coincides together, okay? But now if there's any of you, oh, Jimmy, you're, you are a Georgia, Georgia guy, aren't you? I'm so sorry. And he's a prospective member. I, I take back everything I just said, okay? <laughs> Nothing I said was biblical or true, okay? So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Christians are members of the human world, and we live in the physical world, but we do not belong to the spiritual world that opposes the will and way of God. John 15, 19. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world, what? Hates you. If we're not experiencing any hatred from the world, we might should check our birth certificate. If you're blending in with the world and don't stand out as a peculiar people, we may need to check our ID card because Jesus told his disciples that if you are of the world, then the world's going to love their own. But because you're not of the world, the world hates you. And then he reassured him by saying, don't worry, they're going to hate you, but it's because they hate me. And so the more and more that we look like Jesus the more and more we're going to be hated. So gear up. It's not going to get better. You've got to be prepared. Worldliness is not so much a matter of action as it is an attitude. Because worldliness is a matter of the heart. And worldliness affects our response to the love of God. And so how we respond to the love of God, if there's anything that causes us to lose our enjoyment of the Father's love is worldliness and must be avoided. A good way for you as a family unit is if there's anything that causes an, an outside element or an outside friction between that parent and child relationship. They come home after a, a day at school and there's this attitude about them. Or maybe they've hung out with friends and there's this attitude about them and you are desperately trying to decipher what is it in their mind and heart? What is it that is an outside element that has caused this attitude toward mom or dad? Like where is this disconnect happening? We think about it in that same way with our spiritual relationship. There's that constant evaluation 
that says, where am I rubbing my shoulders the most? Where am I entrenched? Where am I engulfed? Where, am, where are my passions at? Because what that tends to do then is causes, though the Father wants to extend blessings and love to me, I just cop an attitude and stiff arm. And I'm like, you know what? Not today. Not interested. That's because I am so saturated with outside elements that are causing me to disconnect. I've lost the enjoyment of the love of my Father. And just as frustrating as that is as a parent to our child, like, where's the attitude coming from? Like, all right, that's going to be the way. Nothing fun this weekend, right? No desserts for you, all right? I'm going to confiscate all your bubble gum and chew it myself if I have to take every last piece at the same time. Those are the kinds of things that we respond with. Now, nobody's nodding their head, so you're like, wow, you're a freakish dad, okay? I, I haven't had to do any of those things. I'm just assuming that's how we would respond, okay? But here in God the Father, as our Heavenly Father... We have to be careful not to let these outside elements rob us of the enjoyment that we have of God's love. Vance Havner said it this way. He said, we're not to be isolated, but insulated. He said, moving in the midst of evil, but untouched by it. In verse number 16, what does the world do to us? How does it affect us? We see John gives us these three devices that seem to trap us on a regular basis if we're not careful. He says it's the lust of the eyes, the lust, or lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. It's the, really the same trap that nailed Eve back in the Garden of Eden. Think about it, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, it says, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, well, that was the lust of the flesh, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise pride of life. Well, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. We look at this lust of the flesh. It's referring to anything that appeals to the sinful nature of man. It's a fallen condition that we struggle with. The flesh is the nature that we receive the day we were born. Spirit is the nature that we receive the day we were saved or converted. And, and, and ever since our day of salvation, the flesh and the spirit have battled back and forth. That's the whole remove the old man, renew the spirit of your mind, and replace with the new creation. And we go warring back and forth. Are you looking forward to the day when the presence of sin will be no more? I mean, I'm looking forward to no more battles and no more war. I'm just tired of it. And when we look at this lust of the flesh, it is going back and forth to the things that are appealing to our flesh nature. Then there's the lust of the eyes. It's the the pleasures that gratify the sight and the mind. Now, this is a sophisticated and intellectual pleasure. This is something that is a part of our processing, the look that leads us into sin. It's the look and the pondering, and really the songwriter put it this way, about a slow fade that happens when we're not careful with the things that we see. And so that slow fade, I can, I can see this thing today, and it doesn't, it doesn't change me, but the longer that I ponder, think of Achan in the Old Testament when he saw the spoiled goods. God had said, come in, destroy, wipe away, take nothing for your own, but Achan saw those things and wanted them for himself. There was a process. There was David and saw Bathsheba on the rooftop, and he saw and he processed. 
He looked, he longed, he lingered, and it became something that destroyed him because of the lust of the eyes. When you think about in our spiritual journeys, we need to be careful with the things that we bring into our processes, the things that we digest, the things that we partake of on a regular basis. Sometimes we need to evaluate our spirit and our attitude. Why do I think this way? Why do I conclude this way? Why did I respond this way? And it might be because of some of the things that we're processing, articles we're reading or books we're digesting or movies we're watching or TV shows that we're loving. Whatever it might be, those things are becoming processes in our mind that digest and come out of our heart and actions. He continues by saying there's the pride of life. And this is motivated by a boastful sense of accomplishment. For Eve, it was that it was going to make her wise. There was something new and exciting. There was something next step. For David, it was accomplishing yet another task in his life. For Achan, it was something that would make him separate and special. For other people, all through the Bible and all through history, we would find that there's this moment of pride of life that becomes a downfall. Think about it. A true spirit-filled believer will never be defined by pride. A true spirit-filled believer will never be defined by pride. The Bible reminds us that if I regard, or excuse me, that if uh, these six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination, and the first on the list is a proud look. And James says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord And he will lift you up. So many times in conversations, in debriefing or in review, people say, why did you let them say that to you? Or why do you let them do that? Or why did you? And I'd say, you know what? This is God's ministry. This is God's business. They're going to say what they're going to say, and they're going to believe what they want to believe. I'll stay genuine and humble, and I'll do my part and let God do the rest. I want to practice humbling myself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And so I want to be spirit-filled. I'm not going to be the dictator, and I'm not going to harp and and throw you down. I'm not going to condemn you, and I'm not going to say, do it my way or hit the highway, because this is God's church, and we're going to move together. But we can only be unified if we remove pride from our hearts. That's the one thing that I've loved and enjoyed through the years of Parkway. And coming off of the leadership and heels of a pastor like John Richardson became very easy to feed off of a spirit of humbleness. And it became something very natural flowing from our church. And so from our Discover Parkway class to interacting new members into the the flock of Parkway, it's always being reminded about humility. Parkway has no place for pride Because the truth and reality of God's church is that a spirit-filled life can never be defined with pride. We see the last thing is what is the right direction, verse 17. So if we're not to love the world or the things of the world, and if we're to avoid the lust of the flesh, these are the desires and the the practices, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the, the pride of life, well, what are we to do? Verse 17. He says, and the world passes away, and the lust and the desires thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abides forever. So the opening and here in verse number 17, it adds another reason for not loving the world. As if he hasn't given the Christian enough evidence, 
He says, don't love the world, because if you love the world, well, the love of the Father is not in him. Boop, boop, boop. That's an alert. Then he says, verse number 16, he's like, well, if you're going to love the world, you're going to be controlled by the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Whoop, whoop, another alert. But now he says, and, by the way, he says, don't forget, the world, the opposing systems to God's will and way is going to do what? Pass away. Wow. That gets like a big whoop, whoop, right? So it's like, that's there with great intent and purpose. So why? Well, the world is passing away declares its temporary nature. And this is true also of its lust, its desires. It can be alluring, but it is fading away. It's an ongoing process of disintegration. By their very nature, the world's lusts are self-destructive. We see that in people's lives. They give in to the desires of the flesh, the desires, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, and it is self-destructing. You see it in your life when you say, Yahweh, God, Lord, I don't need you today. I've got my mini idols. Come on, mini idols, let's serve today. Self-destruction happens. You see it until renewal happens and you're like, I need restoration. Leaving them back, I've got to get to God because you saw how clearly the destruction was happening in your life. So he's going to remind us here, this word and, this is another alert. And then he says, contrary, but points to the contrasting reality that the one who does the will of God abides forever. And so this assurance is for the one who does the will of God, who sets himself to be obedient to God's will rather than pursuing the fleeting lusts and desires of the world. 2 Peter chapter 3, for those who may be new to all of this talk, it reminds us of God's patience and long-suffering to those who need the gospel in their life. Because 2 Peter put it this way, he wrote, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as men, some men count slackness, or um, this, this uh, impatience, or this, this patience that he has, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so if men ask, why is there no movement of wrath to overthrow the ungodly? Have you ever thought that? Like, God, why don't you step in? I mean, this is getting nasty, ugly, and messy. Could you not just kind of step in and do a little, you know, and just kind of do your thing, and we'll sit back as your people, and we'll celebrate, and we'll be like, yeah, get them, God. Sometimes we have that thought, but if men ask, where's the movement of wrath to overflow the ungodly? The answer is because this is part of God's great reign of love. He waits because he does not want any to perish, but he wants all to come to repentance. Now we understand not all will come to repentance, yet there will be a limit even to his patience and that return of Christ is imminent. It could happen today when Jesus ushers us in that rapture and takes his church home to be with him. So until then, we passionately speak the truth of the gospel. We proclaim the love of Jesus, and we make sure that people know that there is a life to be lived that is lived out abundantly for Christ. So John points out that this love for God and love for the world, by their very natures, they are antagonistic to each other. They, uh, they cannot coexist in the human heart. 
There is no splitting your heart down the middle and saying, this afternoon, I'll love the world. But tonight at six o'clock, loving God, I'm all in, I'm there. The heart cannot be divided by the love of God and the love of the world. And so the love of God is one that is enjoyed in the Christian journey. The love of the world is one to be avoided. In your study notes, I put in the remedy to reverse our heart from forgetting God. Really, these three points were brought up in our study through the book of Judges on Wednesday night. This is really important for us to remember because if we want to follow after the love of God and find great enjoyment in it and not forget about the things of God and love the world, we need to intentionally renew the reality of the gospel in our hearts. And we do that by remembering the Lord's death and resurrection. I was standing there singing with you today in worship, and I was just remembering, I was thinking back, the most exciting moments in worship for me with you as a church family are the songs we sing that bring us to the thought of his death and resurrection. And I know that those are the moments when I get, seem to get the biggest goosebumps and the biggest emotional moment of great worship and reflection, because we have to, as God's people, intentionally renew the reality of the gospel and to do that by remembering his death and his resurrection. Secondly, we need to frequently meditate, reflect, and acknowledge the truths of God's word. Make God's word an important part of your life. If you're going to avoid the love, the, the love that God hates, you have to frequently meditate, frequently reflect, and frequently acknowledge the truths of God's word. And then last, continually celebrate what God is doing in your life. Proclaim the good work. Celebrate, testify, tell somebody else, but certainly within your own heart, continually celebrate what God is doing. It's a slow fade. And the harsh reality is that some people easily slip into the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Maybe not all three combo, but maybe one, or maybe two, and all of a sudden, you see your love and adoration is for that which opposes the things of God. That is loving the world. That's loving the thing that God hates. So church, let's stand strong. Let's stand true. And let's pursue those things that are of God.